All right, so we get to, uh, to come to chapter 3 of Hebrews, and uh, we've been walking through Hebrews for quite some time now. There's much here we want to be careful not to miss. Uh, there are times that it might seem like, well, we're kind of covering what we covered last week, but there's nuances that we need to hear in this message because there are important things said to the people of the author's day, but also to the people of our day, and so we need to hear it. So as we walk through chapter 3, we want to remember that this chapter begins with a comparison and contrast between Jesus and Moses. Now, this is not unusual for Hebrews. Oftentimes, Jesus is compared and contrasted to things from the Old Testament, right? Whether it be chapter 1, angels, right? So we have angels, and there is a comparison and contrast in chapter 1 between the angels and Jesus. The angels are glorious. They are created servants who serve God and serve the will of God, but they are just that, created servants. Jesus is the reigning son. There's no real comparison there, is it? One is a servant, one is the reigning son, the heir, the one who, through whom all things were created, all those great and glorious things told to us in chapter 1. In this chapter, the comparison is between Moses and Jesus. Moses was great. No question about that. Moses was a great man, a great servant of God. No question about that. He was a leader, a liberator. God used him in this way. God called him out of the desert and said, Go back and lead my people out of Egypt. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Let my people go. Moses didn't feel qualified. He really wasn't. Outside of God's aid and help and empowerment, Moses wasn't qualified to do the work. God said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Go and do this thing which I've set before you. So Moses goes. And he leads, his, he leads the Lord's people out of Egypt. And the Jewish people had elevated Moses almost to the level of a demigod at times. And that was far above where he should have been. And the author says this, yes, he was great and he was faithful and we should be thankful for him that God used him in a powerful way, but make no mistake about it, he was faithful as a servant, as faithful in a household. He did the tasks that God gave him to do and he did them faithfully. And you should look up and and use him as an example to follow. As Paul said, follow me as I follow the Lord. Follow Moses as he followed the Lord, but don't mistake him for the Lord. He's a servant working in all the house of God, all of God's house. He was a faithful steward. But Jesus is counted worthy of more glory and honor than Moses. Why? He's not a servant in the household. He's the heir over the household. He is the reigning son who is the heir of all the household. And what is the household? Well, it says whose house we are, right? If we remain faithful, we are his household if we have faith in Christ. If we are his people, we are the household of God. And so Moses was one of us, a great one of us. And Jesus became like us, became our brethren, but he still reigns over us. He is the king, the exalted son. The author of Hebrews says, to which angel did he say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, right? Psalm 110. Well, to which servant did he ever say that? He didn't say that to me, didn't say that to you. He said that to his son, his only begotten son, Jesus. And so again, we see here that there is a contrast. Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, as we continue through that, here is this comparison given that makes us think about Moses. And now the author says, and by the way, while we're talking about Moses, 
Think back to how God used him. Think back to his life. And I'm going to take you to an episode in his life as a warning to you. Now, we spoke about this last Sunday. He goes to the book of Exodus. And this idea, I guess I should say, of the Exodus, because it's a bigger picture than just what's in the book of Exodus, it begins there. But he says, think about a people who were liberated out of slavery in Egypt, had seen many mighty works of God. God moved his powerful and mighty hand on behalf of his people. They saw signs and wonders, things that could be attributed to no one other than God himself. And so, of course, they were thankful and obedient, didn't think at all about rebelling against God. That's what you would think. Unfortunately, it's not what happened. They get into the wilderness, and it's all a story of rebellion, all a story of contention against God, contention against His servant Moses, contention against what God was doing, unbelief. And as we looked last week, the author says, you know, David wrote something about this. Psalm 95, it's right here starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, again, David is the author of this psalm. It'll tell us in the next chapter. The Septuagint always attributed this psalm to David. But he makes the point, this is David writing inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And he says this, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the days in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Now, David's writing this uh, in his lifetime to his people. We spoke about this last week. It's kind of an interesting idea that is attributed to the days of Moses, attributed to the days of David, and now the author of Hebrews will say, and our own day. And I could stand up here and say, and our own day. And this author will tell you, and every day that is a day of grace, listen to this warning. Listen to this warning. And so again, you need to notice that David in his own day had seen mighty works of God. We've spoken about that. He was... uh, Eventually, God brought him up to Jerusalem and united a kingdom under him. They had peace against their enemies. They had all been vanquished by the might and power of God under David's leadership. God blessing David in this way. There was rest in the land. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so you had this period of time that you had all the blessings you could think of, right? Peace, prosperity, God's presence in the the city, the capital city a king under whom all the people were united at this point. And David says, worship our king. Not me, worship our God. Worship him. Give him glory and honor and thanksgiving and praise. But beware. But beware. Lest in this age of seeing the wonders of God, you prove yourself like the Exodus generation, and in the midst of all those glorious things that you've observed, you rebel against God. See, there's an ever-present danger to this, an ever-present danger to comfort, to the blessings of God, somehow distracting us from the God who gave them to us. And this author is telling this generation to listen to this same warning again. Now, as we saw it last Sunday, we ended with verse 12. We're going to look at, we read verse 12 through 15, but we're really going to be looking at verses 12 and 13. Uh, We're going to, in a few weeks' time, come back and look at verses 13 through 15 a little bit more, excuse me, 14 and 15 a little more in depth. 
And then we're going to have a Sunday at the end of November where we're going to finish up this chapter, and that's what we'll kind of park until we get past uh, the end of the year. And we'll come back in the new year to chapter 4. But again, it's an amazing text, and I don't want us to miss some of the things that are said here. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back and read starting at verse 7. And I want you to hear this warning, and then we're going to talk about it. So he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the days of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So as we look at this text today, I want us to focus on, like I said, verses 12 and 13 and think about these two points. First of all, a warning and danger. And second of all, a charge and exhortation. So beginning, uh, first of all, with this warning and danger. Um, We looked last Sunday, as I said a moment ago, about this psalm and its application, how David was using it in his day to say, think back to how the people of God have erred over and over again in rebelling against God. And what is the root of this, the author might argue? What was the the root of what David was warning his people might be the cause of this? Or in fact, is the cause of this? He said unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief. And the author is coming back to that idea again and saying, be careful here that you will demonstrate that you have an evil heart of unbelief. So again, we want to think about this. There's a call for worship. There's a call for recognizing the glory of God and giving Him the honor, praise, and glory that He's due. The author of Hebrews says to his generation, you're in that responsibility now. If God has delivered you, if God has saved you, you owe Him worship, praise, thanksgiving, and glory. That's as simple as it is. And yet you are beginning to flirt with the idea of not doing that. Now, how are they doing it? He says they're walking away. They're departing from the living God. Now, what does he mean by this? He says, we know this. We've been looking at this for a long time now as we've gone through Hebrews. They're talking about going back to the synagogue. They say Christianity is a little too dangerous for us. There's too much persecution against us. If we go back to the synagogue, there's not so much. Not so much over there. The Romans aren't uh, giving the, the synagogue as difficult a time, and certainly there would be no persecution from the Jews if we go back to the synagogue. And... It's the same God. Now, there's a lot in verse 12. We began to look at it last Sunday morning. But if you think about it, the author disagrees with every statement made there. The author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, No, if you go back to the synagogue, you are departing from the living God. And we touched on that last week, didn't we? The reason is because God has revealed Himself in Christ Jesus. He offers His grace In Christ Jesus. And we just read a catechism that said, and none other, right? And none other. In other words, if you depart from Christ, you are departing from the living God. You've been given revelation that doesn't allow you to stay comfortably in Judaism. You've come out of Judaism. You can't go back 
That'd be no different, the author says, than those that came out of Egypt and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in the desert? Let us go back into the land of our imprisonment. The author says, you can't do it. You can't depart and go back. You would be turning away from the living God. In the same way that it gave warnings, as we went back to Numbers 12, uh, earlier in this chapter, where it was said that Moses, God said himself, Moses is a servant in all my house. And in that passage, you remember, uh, Aaron had rebelled against Moses, and, and uh, he said to him, how can you dare to do this? Right? Moses is not like any other prophet. Other prophets I've given visions to and dreams to, but Moses I've spoken to face to face. How dare you try to undercut him or get rid of him? Well, if it was a sin to go against Moses because God had lifted him up, and Moses is just a servant, how much weightier is the error and judgment due if you do the same to Jesus Christ, the son and heir of God? Right, the Son of God. This heirship language is the idea, right? He's the inheritor of all things. Now, I want to be careful with this because it, we had a whole sermon on this in chapter 1 a long time ago. But when it speaks of him being the heir, Christ already owns it all as God. But in his Messiahship, as of the one who came into the world and became the Messiah, the King, he becomes the heir. The one who is already the owner of all things becomes the messianic heir. And again, those sermons are online if you want to go back and clarify exactly what we're saying there. But it's what the Bible says. And so again, in his incarnation, there was a different role here. But notice again, if you turn away from him, you're of greater error than turning away from Moses. And God warned those who turned away from Moses that they were due for judgment. They were due for judgment. So again, the question is, in a very parallel argument to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, if it was a sin to violate and carry judgment to violate a covenant mediated by angels, how much weightier will the judgment be on those who violate a covenant mediated by God's own Son? In the same way, if it was a sin that carried judgment to rebel against Moses, God's ambassador, how much more will it be a sin and bring judgment to rebel against Christ, to turn away from Him? Now again, there's a warning here. Now what is this born out of? What is this born out of? Well, look what the author says. It would reveal in you, brothers, he says, an evil heart of unbelief. An evil heart of unbelief. If you leave the living God, if you turn away from Him, if you depart from Him, and that word apostani, it's the word from which we get apostasy. If you turn away from the living God and go to whatever else it would be, idolatry of some sort, in the end, He says, then you are guilty of having an evil heart of unbelief. It will have revealed that you have an evil heart of unbelief. That's an interesting way of wording, isn't it? A heart of unbelief is a heart of evil. We could say that. It's only through faith that our evil hearts are transformed. Transformed. And so again, uh, that statement stands on its own, an evil heart of unbelief. But what's really interesting about it, if you think about it for a moment, it would leave us to question what's the... uh, What's the relationship between unbelief and evil? Evil here really is about rebellion, isn't it? So what's the relationship between unbelief and rebellion? Well, they're, they're connected. Does rebellion come out of unbelief or unbelief out of rebellion? I think the answer is yes. It's kind of cyclical, right? It's that way. But if you had to do the chicken and the egg thing and say which comes first, I think the answer is given to us in Romans 1. It's rebellion, right? For although they knew God... They would not glorify him as God, 
nor were they thankful, right? And so God darkens their minds. But again, I think if you look at it first, the first step is that there is a rebellion against God, and that leads to unbelief through a darkening of the mind and hardening of the heart. And I think if you look at this, it says the same thing. Because as he moves into this next verse, he will warn to be careful lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You rebel, you turn away from the living God, you enter into sin, you're hardened by the sin, that leads to more unbelief, and the cycle continues. Romans 1 speaks very much of this cycle, doesn't it? It begins this uh, just downgrade, if you will, as you look through the conclusion of chapter 1 at what happens to those who suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Now, you may remember when we went through Romans years ago, uh, that picture of suppression is the idea of a trunk that you're trying to close down, or a suitcase that you're trying to close down. It's overfilled, and you're having to really put your weight down on it to get it to close so you can latch it. That's what it's saying. They are battling against the knowledge of God. They are suppressing His truth in ignorance. Is that what Paul says? No, in unrighteousness. In unrighteousness. There is no good reason. It's unrighteousness living itself out in their suppression of the knowledge of God. And so again, he's warning them here, be careful, because if you turn away, if you depart, if you apostatize from the living God, then it will show an evil heart of unbelief. Now, I've told you all all along my take on this. Um, I think if you look at the text carefully, he believes these are brothers in Christ. He believes that these are transformed believers in Christ. The warnings of them walking away, and not because he thinks they will, but this is the method which he shakes them awake. You remember we talked about Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about how a doctor who gives a warning that's not being listened to and says, you need to do this, and you're not listening, he'll up the stakes. Listen, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Something bad will happen. And so again, it gets your attention, and you may listen now. In the same way, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who himself was a medical doctor, who became a, one of the great preachers, said in the same way the author of Hebrews is trying to warn his hearers, you're in danger. You're in danger. Beware, brothers. You're in danger. They're not listening. So he's grabbing them by the lapels and he's shaking them pretty hard verbally, isn't he? You're in danger of walking away from the living God. What will it mean if you do go back to the synagogue? It will mean you had an evil heart of unbelief. You didn't have a faithful heart. You weren't a man of faith. It, it reveals what was revealed in the desert, in the wilderness. Were these a faithful people? They had never been faithful. They griped and complained and rebelled and contended against God the entire time. I mean, when they first got to leave and the gold was brought to them, they were like, oh, God's amazing. He's great. A week later, what is he doing? Why did he bring us out here to die? Not a people of faith. And David was saying in his day, be careful how you behave lest it be revealed the same of you. And the author here says, be careful how you behave lest it reveal the same of you. That you never were a person who trusted in Christ. You were always a person uh, lost in the deceitfulness of sin and with an evil heart of unbelief. Now, why do I think this text again shows it? He calls them brothers. This was the church term, as it is now, for those in the faith. He's saying, I believe you're a brother. I believe you are. I hope you won't prove me wrong. I hope your actions won't undercut the testimony you've given us all along, that you are a brother who's placed your trust in Christ. And yet the first time the waves come, 
you walk away. That would tell me it was never a true testimony. You were never, never our brother. And so again, there's a warning here. Do not depart from the living God. Do not do what's easy. Do not take the easy path because the testimony that it will give will be the same as the testimony of those who died in the wilderness. Never received the promise that God had given. Never received that promised rest, that promised land. They never entered the land of promise. Now we know where this author is going to go with that equivalent, don't we? What is the land of promise that we're being offered, promised? You don't want to be counted out of this, do you? You don't want to die in the wilderness short of this promise. Be careful, he's saying. Listen to how serious this is. Listen to how serious this is. Beware, lest having seen the mighty works of God, and by the way, had this generation. David's generation had, Moses' generation had. We saw this, didn't we? He says that, how did they first hear the gospel? They heard it from those who'd heard it from Christ. And God co-testified with signs and wonders. So they had seen the workings of God, the, the marvelous miracles of God. They had seen the power of God. What excuse will you have any more than those in the wilderness had? What excuse will you have if you turn away? And so again, this is where he brings us to a charge that they need to hear, a charge I believe we need to hear. Because we may come into an age where it's very difficult to be a believer. Our brothers and sisters around the world have faced that in our own lifetimes and actually in the last 2,000 years of church history. We may face it. Are we going to melt away? Are we going to turn away from the living God? We need to be thinking about this very warning in our own lives. And that brings us to our second point, a charge and exhortation. So what's the prescription to this problem? Well, on the first level, keep your eyes upon Jesus, right? That's the easy, simple answer. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. There is hope in no other. There is no one else to turn to. Moses cannot save you. As Paul laid out those categories in Romans, he didn't say you are in Adam or in Christ or maybe in Moses. There's some middle ground there. He didn't give that as an option. You're in Adam under the judgment of God or you are in Christ saved from His wrath because Christ took it upon Himself. There is no third option. So who are you going back to the synagogue to? That's the question. And in fact, we looked at this earlier as he talks about Moses, his faithful servant. He says that Moses gave a testimony to those things which would come after. Moses was pointing to Jesus. So who are you going back to? So that's the first level, of course. Keep your eyes upon Jesus. But there's something else here that's easy to overlook. We need to take our time for just a second and think about it. The author says, but... Beginning in verse 13. Now we know that bud is a word of contrast. Allah. And it actually means something like rather do, rather, or instead. That's what it means here. So instead of departing from the living God, why don't you do this instead? Exhort one another daily. Exhort one another daily. Parakaleo. This is, actually means to call alongside. Just walk with people. Encourage them, exhort them, warn them. Right? This is the idea. Instead of watching one another walk away in the deceitfulness of sin, uh, away departing from the living God, instead exhort one another daily. Exhort, encourage one another daily. Warn one another daily. Care about one another daily. 
Be accountable to one another daily. Now, this is something that we don't like in the church today, having any accountability one to the other. We think, oh, I mean, it's my business. My walk with Christ is my business. That's not what this text says. This text says we have a responsibility one to the other to exhort and encourage one another, to challenge one another, to correct one another, to walk alongside one another. That's what he's saying. Rather than walk our brethren, watch our brethren walk away from the living God, challenge them, encourage them, exhort them, walk alongside them. You might get the idea of disciple them, right? We have a responsibility to recognize that we are called to do just this. In the face of danger, the people of God are called to be at work in each other's lives, to encourage one another to exhort one another, to hold each other accountable, to strive to encourage each other, and to encourage each other against the danger of sin. Again, in an age that has seen church discipline fall away, doesn't even exist in most churches, why do you have church discipline? Because you take a verse like this seriously that says, look, we have responsibility toward one another, to warn one another. Paul said, I told all of you the truth that your blood will not be on my hands. He took that seriously, didn't he? Paul thought, if I don't warn you, and I know you're walking astray from the living God, God might require your blood at my head. He took that seriously. He said, I will tell you the truth no matter how much you don't want to hear it, because I refuse to stand before God and give an account that I knew you didn't know the truth and I let you walk away not having heard it. So again, we have to look at texts like this. This text calls us to recognize that when we say we're a family in Christ, we are truly a family in Christ. We are to love one another and to care about one another. And that means to not just watch somebody walk off a cliff and not say anything. If my son back there is about to step off a cliff, I'm going to grab his arm. I'm going to say, wait just a second, look where you're stepping. You're in danger. If I saw any one of you all this close about to do the same and I'm just like, oh, well, it's not my business. How much love do I have for you? And yet this is the idea we're having in the church today, right? In the churches today that we aren't really supposed to care about each other to the point of accountability. My friends, we need it and we should offer it. And this text tells us to, in the face of this danger, exhort one another. And notice Notice what it says here. There's a reason for it. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I love that wording, the deceitfulness of sin. Luther, speaking of this very text, said this, It is rightfully called the deceitfulness of sin because it deceives us under the appearance of good. Sin has a funny way of doing that, doesn't it? I don't know if always sin appears good, but we find ways to justify our sin. As if it's good, don't we? Well, I had no choice. You know, I was trying to do what was right. You know, I, I thought that, uh, that that was the right thing to do. We are uh, very good at couching our sins in holy terms. You know, oh, I, maybe I was wrong, but my intentions were good. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. Oftentimes they're not, at least. I'm not saying we can't sin trying to do what's right. But we're not doing what's right. right? Sin is never the right thing. And that's important to recognize. Sin is itself a rebellion. Right? That's what that word's. Uh, Haramartia, it, it means to miss the mark. It means to do what God has not told us to do. Either to miss where we should be aiming 
or to not even aim where God has told us to aim. It is to sin. And again, there is a danger in the deceitfulness of sin. That's what this is telling us. Sin is deceptive to us. And part of that is because sin is often a corruption of what is good, right? When you're flipping through the television or you're at a park and you see something that's attractive to the eye, it may be because God has made that attractive to us, like the opposite sex, for instance. But that doesn't mean that lust is good, right? You see the difference here. The Bible tells us about this, right? There are all the things that are often sins or corruptions of what is good. And so, again, uh, it's easy to go, well, I'm just a man. Yeah, you're a sinful man. That's not an excuse, right? We have to battle against sin in the flesh. We are told that in numerous places in Scripture, to be at war, to mortify sin in the flesh. And John Owen, in that great book on the mortification of sin, warns us that sin is more than just a thing. It's a force. I think he's right about this. I think that's what Paul argues in Romans. It's a force that is seeking, as he said, to work itself out to its greatest manifestation in you. That's why Jesus says, you say you haven't murdered? Guess that's good, but he who's had hatred in his heart for his brother has murdered him in his heart. What's he getting at? The root of murder is hatred. You know? You might be in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you say something you wouldn't want anybody outside your car to have ever heard you said. Something about, oh, I wish somebody would shoot that guy or whatever it might be, right? That's the same root, isn't it? You just didn't act on it. But Owen's warning and the warning of Scripture is if you're not battling that sin, it will work itself out in greater and greater manifestations. Greater and greater manifestations. Lust is no different. Greed is no different. All of these sins... Be careful. It is deceptive. You think you have control over it. It has control over you. In that same book, Be Killing Sin or Sin Will Surely Be Killing You. You can think about many examples of this. The one that comes to my mind, many of you read this as children or maybe even as adults, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis. Edmund comes before the White Witch, and the White Witch basically says he can have whatever he wants. He wants Turkish delight. Nothing wrong with Turkish delight. It's a great candy, right? I don't actually know. But anyway, but I assume it's good. Edmund thinks it's good. And he's given so much that he eats and he eats and he eats and he eats until he makes himself sick. What a subtle and beautiful picture C.S. Lewis gives us there of what sin is, right? It's something we think is good for us until we've engaged in it and consumed it and it makes us ill and it destroys us. Again, this is the point. So there is a warning about the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I want to bring it back to this because this is the title of the sermon and what I want you to think about. How often do we need to exhort one another? What does the text say? Daily. Daily. I am never so advanced in my walk that I don't need people encouraging me, exhorting me, walking alongside me, warning me, and neither are you. See the point? Daily, the author says. We need to exhort one another daily. And if we get to the point where we think, oh, I don't need anybody to ever tell me anything at all, my friend, you're in worse shape than you realize you are. And you're already falling to pride. My friends, we need the Scriptures every day, but this message is telling us that we can't do it alone. That is the reason that this same letter says to this same people to not neglect the fellowship, the gathering of the saints. Maybe there were some of them that thought, well, I'm not sure if we're going to go back to the synagogue, but at least for a while we're just going to stay home. This author is saying, beware. Be very careful. 
without the exhortation of the people of God, you are in danger. You are in danger. Without those relationships and that exhortation and that encouragement, you are in danger of falling victim to the deceitfulness of sin. My friends, we need to hear this. And we need to hear it daily. We need to encourage one another daily. Now I want to close by asking you to think about this. Because I love the way the author does this. He says, exhort one another daily. Well, how does he justify this or or think about this? He says, while it is called today. Now he's going back to Exodus and he says, you know, uh, there was a warning there in that day. To hear the voice of God that day. And then David is quoting here. David says, listen, uh, today if you will hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts. Listen, respond to Him in faithfulness. Respond to God. Today, David said, did that psalm lose its power the next day? Did it lose its authority two days later, a week later, a month later? If you read it a generation later, is David still speaking to you through the Holy Spirit? Today, if you hear His voice, yes. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't be like those in the wilderness who rebelled against God. Have a tender heart toward God. And this author is saying, by the way, I'm going to apply that to today. His day, 2,000 years ago. He says, exhort one another daily while it is called today. Or while it is still called today. It's still today in that sense. A day of grace, a day to respond to the call of God, a day to hear His conviction, a day to respond to the living God. To not harden your hearts today is a day in which you can respond. So do so. Now if you understand it in the way he's using it, that means today is that same day. As was yesterday, two weeks ago. Every day in which God's grace is available to man is today. So if you're hearing him today, do not harden your hearts as those in the wilderness did, who saw the miracles and wonders of God and yet rebelled against Him. Do not rebel against God today. If you hear His voice today, if you hear His call today, if you hear His voice today, today's the day to respond. Now why is that important? Because many people act as if what it says is, tomorrow if you hear His voice. Next week if you hear His voice. Next month if you hear His voice. Next year if you hear His voice. My friends, this author is warning you, you're not guaranteed tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. If you hear Him today, offer thanksgiving for hearing Him and respond. Do not harden your hearts, but respond while there is yet time. Because the children of Israel rebelled against God until there was a day He said, that's it. That's it. This generation shall not enter my rest. I think this author says, be careful lest you put off, put off, and put off until it's too late. My friends, I would warn you of the same thing today. Hearing the same warning today, while it is still called today, if you hear his voice, hear what he says. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but respond in faith. Amen.